This is Archive Atlanta, episode 104, Indigenous and Native Atlanta. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. If you're listening to this in real time, then I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday, as much as we all could in a pandemic. I feel very fortunate to have my parents close by, and we've been seeing them all year, so I got to have you know, family around. And then while we zoomed in anybody out of state, usually I would take a podcast break um, for the holidays and I definitely will for the Christmas holiday, but I wanted to pop into your feed today with a short episode about the Atlanta area's indigenous and Native American history. Today in the U.S. is a civil holiday called Native American Heritage Day. Of course, a ceremonial day on the calendar will not erase our country's history of Indian genocide, forced removal, etc., 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 but maybe it'll prompt non-Native people to want to learn more about the nation's indigenous history, more understanding of the land that you're on today and its history, you know, before white people. I produce a podcast, so obviously turn to this medium when I want to learn more stuff. So I highly recommend a podcast called All My Relations. Their most recent episode is all about the you know true history of American Thanksgiving told by two Wampanoag scholars. So I have a link in the show notes for you guys if you want to check that out. Since day one, I've wanted to have an episode about local Native American or Indian history, but the research was out of reach for me uh, and what I had access to. Author Mark Pfeiffer, um, who I mentioned back in episode 62 about Decatur, has been a wealth of knowledge uh, for me. His book, Native Decatur, was the first local history book that I had read that even mentioned Native people. He and I connected online, and he allowed me to read the manuscript for an upcoming book. And while I wish this could have been an interview episode, you are just going to be stuck with me regurgitating a lot of the things that I learned from his words. So this week, we're covering the history of Native Americans in the Atlanta area. This is by no means a full story. I'm going to be very brief, um, not covering all of the facts, but hopefully something that will implore you to read more about it, or at the very least, think deeper about the land that you're on today. I've talked about Atlanta's origin story many times in the past in a way that made it sound like it was just the middle of nowhere until the railroad came, and I didn't think anything of it. But as the saying goes, when you know better do better. Atlanta was not built because of the railroads. It existed here because of indigenous people. To quote Mark, thousands upon thousands of prehistoric feet trod through the Atlanta area from the Atlantic and the Gulf of Mexico along the Chattahoochee and into the mountains before the 1830s. And they knew exactly where they were and where they were headed and why. End quote. The spot on the map that we call Atlanta today was over a thousand feet above sea level and lay in a gentle slope between Appalachia and the Gulf. It was not accidental. Before we get to the earliest people, let's talk about prehistoric animals, because this is probably my favorite history. After the dinosaurs, we had mastodons, camels, caribou, sheep, and deer. So that's all about 2.8 million years ago. These animals brought along with them predators like saber-toothed tigers, cougars, lynx, jaguars, and bears. 20,000 years ago, we had red wolves, red foxes, coyotes, dire wolves, mammoths, giant beavers, giant ground sloths, and giant chipmunks. 12,000 years ago, the first people appeared in North America, and 5,000 years ago, the first permanent homes were established around rivers and creeks in the metro Atlanta area. People began hunting and fishing along the Chattahoochee River and then developed the use of soapstone. 
And one of the most abundant sources of soapstone was at the start of the South River. Um, today, that is in DeKalb County, and it's called Fort Creek Mountain Park. I have still not been there, which I'm very ashamed to say. And I've heard that not a lot of this is left, but there was remnants of the soapstone bowl making and really interesting archaeological remnants. 2,000 years ago, earthen mounds were constructed, and the social structure of indigenous people in this area was based on towns and agriculture. Each town was organized into a chiefdom with a primary village, and then the average chiefdom was eight towns large, and then each of those hosting 100 settlements along riverbanks. At the center of each village was a mound or a plaza. And these settlements also appeared at the crossing of prehistoric trails. And so Decatur was especially rich in trails and trail crossings. And I talked about this a little bit in that Decatur episode. Four confirmed trails were the Sandtown Trail, Indian Springs Trail, Standing Peachtree Trail, and Shallowford Trail, which today Shallowford Trail is Claremont Avenue. Basically, indigenous people were highly adept at choosing the best path from A to B. And Pfeiffer talks about this in his book, um, but we travel the same roads all day, every day, whatever you, you know, whether you bike or you run or you drive a car. And I don't think any of us are stopping to wonder why a road goes left or why it makes a sharp turn or, you know, how it travels the landscape. But these early paths were, you know, so perfect that our modern roads are built on top of them. The first Europeans arrived in Georgia in 1513, and then Hernando de Soto reached the interior of the state in 1540. And that contact um, began where we start talking about things in the historical area, so before that we consider it prehistoric. And this also marks the end of original native culture, because once you introduce the Europeans, um, trade begins, lots of other things, but mostly disease. Uh, smallpox, cholera, measles, just to name a few, was completely devastating to the native populations. It killed at the very least half and probably upwards into 80-90%. The Cherokee and the Creeks are two groups of Native Americans associated with Atlanta, but historically the Cherokee territory was on the west side of the Chattahoochee River and up into North Georgia, albeit a brief period where Standing Petrie was taken over by the Cherokee. When it comes to the creek, I want to share something important that I learned in this research, which is that white people named them that. The creek were not even one unified tribe. They were um, a coalescent group or confederacy of remaining Indians in the area that formed um, for protection and political power, which we'll get to in a second. Their unit of societal division was being identified by your town. But when Europeans hit the coast of Georgia, they saw groups of people living along the Ochis Creek, and I hope I said that right. Um, and Ochis is a Muscogean word for the Okamulgee River. So that's where they got it. So they just were like, oh, okay, these people are Creeks, and hence everyone is Creeks. Now, the Muscogee did adopt the term Creek and used it. They also, though, often called themselves Muscogean, which was their shared language. In the late 1600s, Iroquois raids from the north, along with a lot of other complex factors, pushed more indigenous people into the Atlanta area and especially into Sandtown. And so when you're talking about local native history, you may have heard of Sandtown and Standing Peachtree. Sandtown is older than the latter and was located where Six Flags Over Georgia is today. The sheer amount of mounds in this area tells us that a village existed here almost 2,000 years ago. And the mounds predate the ones that we can still visit in North Georgia by 800 years. 
1825, it was a well-established creek town. And in 1938, they did an archaeological study that uncovered two human skeletons that appeared to be buried in a ritualized way. Sadly, we never dated them, so we don't know when they were from. And so you're probably thinking, whoa, whoa, Victoria, like I'm from Atlanta. Why did I not know that these amazing indigenous earthen mounds are at Six Flags? Because they are not. They were demolished by the great Southwest Development Company in 1967 to build the park before the mounds could be studied archaeologically because this is Atlanta. (laughs) So, I mean, that's probably the most depressing thing I read all week doing this, um, but something to think about the next time that you're there if you visit it. Standing peach trees show signs of human occupation from a thousand years ago, and I read in another article that maybe even 8,000 years ago, and it sat at the connection of Peachtree Creek and the Chattahoochee River. In the Muscogee language, it was known as Pakanuli, probably said that wrong, but that translated to literally standing peach tree. And for a while, there was a debate whether that meant a real peach tree, which is very rare in Atlanta, or a pitch tree. And so, I mean, when I first moved here and started reading history, I think everyone thought it was pitch tree. Um, But now there is modern historians cite the written account by local postmaster George Washington Collier, who specifically says there was an actual real live peach tree on the mound in the center of the village. And of course... Peachtree sounds incredibly familiar because we have 78 roads with the name Peachtree in it, and that is where it comes from. During the period of unrest between the Creek people, the U.S. government built a fort at the site of Standing Peachtree. James McConnell Montgomery was tasked with being in charge of these. He had built boats, I think was his task, but the whole thing did not work out as planned, and the fort was abandoned in 1814. Um, Apparently, though, he fell in love with the area because after the land secession, um, when that became part of DeKalb County in 1822, Montgomery rushed back to settle there with his family, acting as postmaster and operating a ferry. In 1971, a site study found archaeological evidence of 50 structures and 11 houses. But guess what happened? The city destroyed everything when they constructed our waterworks. I'm not kidding. For a while, there was park space, Uh, that still is called a park, and they built like a recreated cabin with a small exhibit in it. And I don't remember if it was the Olympics were coming to town, or maybe it was 9-11, but there was a growing concern about being so close to the entire city's waterworks, you know, that was making us vulnerable to an act of domestic terrorism, so everything's been shut down. Vandals got in, the cabin had been vandalized. You can Google this because there's some current articles about this. I think you are still allowed access, but it has to be requested through the city or through the water department. There are a handful of Creek historical figures that you may have learned about in school. I learned in this research that all of them were half white with Scottish fathers and Muscogee mothers. I'm only going to talk about two today, but I do encourage you to read more. Alexander McGillivray is called the father of the Creek Nation. He's credited with organizing them into one nation so they could negotiate, as well as creating the National Council for Upper and Lower Creeks. In 1790, he traveled to Washington, D.C. to visit with George Washington, and he signed the first treaty with the U.S. He died in 1793, which was before the Red Stick War, or the Creek War as it often is called. And this was a war between the two Creek factions, Upper and Lower. While I'm not going to get into the details, I will share how it ended 
which is not well. Andrew Jackson forced the groups to sign the Treaty of Fort Jackson in 1814, which ended the war, but also forced the cession of almost 22 million acres. Today, this is half of Alabama and almost all of Southern Georgia was given to the U.S. government. This also made Jackson a national figure, which would lead to his election as president in 1829. And if you know your history, he then pressed for the Congressional Indian Removal Act of 1830. William McIntosh was a leader of the Lower Creeks and part of the Coweta clan that controlled the area that is today Atlanta. And the land you're standing on today was formally deeded to the U.S. in the Indian Springs Treaty of 1821. For the 6,700 square miles, the U.S. was supposed to pay the Creeks $10,000 at signing, um, $40,000 when the treaty was ratified, along with $200,000 in various annual payments over the years. For organizing this treaty, McIntosh was paid $40,000 himself. This treaty gave the Creeks land in Oklahoma, so they were supposed to move. Um, This is a very complex story as well, but the majority of the Creek Nation did not want this or authorize this. It was actually against their laws. So when they discovered that what McIntosh had did, um, he was sentenced to death and he was killed by the Creek lawmenders. Another treaty was brokered in 1827 where the Creeks agreed not to oppose the U.S. in exchange for their land rights. Although signed and legal, it was basically ignored by the federal government. Land in Georgia was distributed to white settlers as part of the land lottery. There was a second Creek War in 1836, mainly involving territory in Alabama. The state acted to abolish tribal governments and extend the state laws over the Creek. Um, They signed a Treaty of Cassetta which divided lands into individual allotments. So the Creek should have been able to choose to stay on their land or sell it and go west. And if they stayed, though, in Alabama, they would become federal citizens, so subject to the laws of the United States. Land speculators uh, began to defraud the Creeks out of their allotments, so there was some violent backlash, of course, which the U.S. then described as a war in order to argue that the Creeks were forfeiting their prior treaty rights. And that really marked the end of Creek existence in Georgia, especially. Forced removals occurred all the way into 1838. The land of Metro Atlanta was divided then into 202 and a half acre land lots and then given away to white men who mainly used it as farming land. The arrival of the railroads changed a lot of that, but that's another story for another day. So there you have it, the brief history of indigenous and native history in Atlanta, I hope that at the very least this is getting you to search some of this online, maybe find some books, listen to some podcasts that I have linked in the show notes. Thank you all for listening. Remember to leave a rating or review. Remember to check out the Patreon link to see how you can support the podcast. But most importantly, have a great weekend. I will be back next week with another fun interview episode for you guys.